Well, hello, I'm Andy Matson. I'm the pastor of this new church community called Reunion. And if you don't have a pastor, well, guess what? I would gladly be your pastor. I, uh, I also became a dad for the second time just a few weeks ago, and uh, it's great. We got a picture up here up on screen. This is this is the newest guy right here. That is Jonathan Phoenix or Johnny Phoenix, and then right next to him, big brother, our two-year-old David Zion Madsen, and they're buds, and it's cute. And we're not sleeping too great these days, but it's totally worth it. Uh, if you don't want to see baby photos every day on Instagram and Facebook, you should uh, you should probably mute me for a while because there's been a cuteness takeover. And uh, and besides, it's not like you want to see pictures of me anyway. You just want to see pictures of the new guy. Um, some of you have told me that you're like, "Where's the baby?" And uh, I'm just I'm just old news now, and that's okay. That's okay. I get it. He's he's much cuter than me. So new church, new baby. Uh, in all kinds of ways, this has been a season of new life for me. So let's talk about new life. Let's begin with one of the strangest, maybe even the funniest things that Jesus said after his resurrection. In this part of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, let's keep in mind that Jesus is meeting his disciples for the very first time after he's resurrected from the dead. They don't know that he's resurrected. So keep all this in mind because I think that Jesus is having a little bit of fun with his friends. Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's it is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? <laughs> Do you have anything here to eat? Because I don't know about you, but after dying and rising from the dead, I am starving. In, in some Christian circles, people will ask you what your life verse is. And uh, you're supposed to have a really spiritual sounding answer. And I like to mess with those people. I like to tell them, yeah, my life verse is Luke 24, 42. What's for lunch? Because I think those are some red letters of Jesus that we can all get behind. Am I right? Do you guys have anything here to eat? Keep in mind that in these stories that follow Jesus' resurrection, Luke is telling us about someone who has been betrayed, mocked, beaten, abandoned, crucified, and three days later is resurrected from the dead. So let's talk about that for a bit. The Persians invented crucifixion, and the Greeks crucified people as well, but it was the Romans who took it to a whole new level. Their goal was to keep someone alive for as long as possible in the greatest amount of agony without killing them. The word excruciating means out of the cross. They needed a new word to describe the level of pain and suffering that you'd be going through. They didn't have a word, so they had to come up with a word. Ex 
excruciating. It's meant to describe the most unbearable pain and suffering that you'd experience on a Roman cross. And the Romans became really good at putting people through excruciating pain. Crucifixion stopped around 300 A.D., And it wasn't until 400 A.D. that you started to see the cross being used as a symbol that represented Christianity because, well, if you'd actually ever seen a crucifixion, you would never think, oh, that'd be a cute set of earrings. If you'd actually seen a crucifixion, you would never want anyone else to see one or even to imagine one. This was not table talk. The word crux was a a four-letter word. You wouldn't bring it up while people were eating a meal or trying to enjoy their day. It would wreck everything. He didn't talk about this. But the story of Jesus is about somebody who's been mocked and beaten and betrayed and abandoned and crucified and three days later is back from the dead to tell us about it. So here's the thing about Jesus. If you have experienced the worst that a human being can endure and you survive it, you are one dangerous person. Would you agree? If, you, if you've died and come back from the grave, do you think it'd be pretty difficult for people to scare or intimidate you? Like, oh, what are you going to do? Kill me? Oh, no. What's that like? Oh. Would anything rattle you or throw you off anymore? I think it's fair to say that you'd be set free to live a life that was free of fear. You'd be set free to really live. What if all along... This is what Jesus wanted to do within all of us. Do you know any survivors? Is there anyone in your life who has survived a life-threatening illness or situation? Think about what, what they were like on the other side of that experience. Did it seem like their outlook on life had been changed? Did you see them rearrange their priorities? Did certain things just not matter so much anymore? Were there other things that started to matter a whole lot more? I bet we got some stories in this room. So here's what we're going to do. Introduce yourself to two other people next to you, hopefully somebody you didn't come with, and have somebody in the group talk about a survivor in your life, even if that survivor is you. What happened to the survivor, and how did that experience change them? Ready? Go for it. After somebody has actually faced their own death, it sets them free from fear. It sets them free to really live. The message we've heard is that we should believe in Jesus so that one day after we die, we'll have eternal life. And that's true, but it's not the whole story. When we say that, we shortchange people, we shortchange ourselves. Because what if all along Jesus had been teaching us how to really live on this side of death? And it all starts at Jesus' baptism. We read about it in Matthew 3, verse 16. Matthew's main audience is a group of people who come from a Jewish background, so they'd be very familiar with the first book of the Bible called Genesis. And in Genesis, we're told that when God created the world, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God spoke, and creation came to be. So how does God bring something new into the world? 
In the beginning of the creation story, it's with water. But we need to understand something. Matthew's audience, they weren't a bunch of West Coast Californians like me and you. Water was not a positive image for them. It wasn't a place for relaxing at the beach and stand-up paddleboarding and surfing and snorkeling. In the scriptures, water is often a symbolic picture of chaos and death. And so when we, when we hear about the Creator God bringing life out of water, the picture is that God has brought life out of chaos and death. And the Spirit of God in Genesis is hovering like a bird, and then new life emerges. So with that in the background, Matthew 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So at the beginning of the creation story, there's waters of death and chaos, there's the Spirit of God, and there's the voice of God. And then at the beginning of the Jesus story, it echoes the creation story. In the Jesus story, God is bringing about something new into the world, and it's also through water. But the Jesus story is about someone who went down into those waters and came up out of those waters. This is the Christ pattern. Jesus is demonstrating for us that we don't need to go around hardship or chaos or death. From the very first moments of his story, Jesus has already faced his death. He was baptized into it, immersed in it, and then he emerged from it, and then he's empowered by the Spirit to live a new kind of life. What if this is what Jesus wants to do in all of us, to teach us how to really live on this side of death? If that's the case, who could we become? Who here would say that a big part of their story was a time when God allowed you to go down into something that was dark or full of fear or great pain or loss? A little more than a year ago, Sarah and I were at Kaiser, and her sonogram technician suddenly became very serious. And she called her supervisor into the room, who also became very serious. And then a doctor who said, I'm so sorry. I don't see a heartbeat. And then there was that long drive back home. Sarah and I had arrived in separate cars. We didn't think to drive together. This was going to just be a routine appointment to see our baby and, you know, get some pictures to put on our fridge. But our baby had no heartbeat. And now we were driving home alone. The thing about a miscarriage is that you don't get quick closure. Nothing about it is quick. Every moment, day by day, it just feels like a little part of you dies with the baby. As the, as the man, as the husband, I had very little ability to feel like, you know, if there's anything I could, I could fix this or make this right. You just, you just suffer with your wife. And, and then for, 
for the mother, for for the woman, your your womb, which is supposed to be a place of life. Sarah said, "It's it's 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 like it's become a tomb." And then the the doctor was worried about the progression of Sarah's miscarriage, so we had to spend Valentine's Day in the emergency room. February 14, 2018 was the worst Valentine's Day of our lives. There was a song that came became very important to me during this time. When when Sarah and I had to drive back home from the from the, the sonogram appointment, you know, I asked her, like, should I leave the car here? Do I'll go with you? Do you want me to call you and we'll just talk along the way? And Sarah's Sarah's emotional instincts and sense for what's the the best way to deal with something. She's usually always right on and way ahead of me. And, and she, she just said, you know, I'm just, I'm going to just, I want to drive and I'm just going to sing some worship songs and just cry and talk to God. And uh, that actually ended up being a really good idea for me too. But then it's just, it's so weird. You know, I pull up my phone and I look through my music. You know, what's a, what's a good song for a moment like this? Like I've never faced anything like this before. But then there was this song that I, I had on my phone. It's it's by Delirious. It's called I'll See You. And I, I'd always passed over this song, you know, didn't mean a whole lot to me, but now it was exactly what I needed to sing, exactly what I needed to say. It gave me the words I needed to say to, to grieve my baby. And the song says, I'll see you when I get there. Because I never got to hold my baby. I never got to kiss my baby's face. So I needed to sing the words, I'll see you when I get there. Because that's my resurrection hope. I will see you when I get there. And I, I don't think it's an accident that just a few months before at Christmas time, my mom had given us an amaryllis bulb. Many of you know the, amaryll- the amaryllis, it's a, it's a beautiful flower. It's a flower that blooms in the winter. And is it winter when we most need to see something beautiful? It starts as a bulb. You bury it in the dirt. So the symbolism just became really powerful and so fitting for what we were going through. You bury it, but then you wait. And you know, yes, it's winter, but something beautiful is on the way. Because that's my resurrection hope. My hope is that death doesn't get the last word in our lives. Jesus gets the last word in our lives. If you follow the way of Jesus, Jesus is teaching us not to avoid chaos or hardship or death. The way of Jesus is to go down into it, entrusting our life to the Creator God. Because after we face those waters and we come up out the other side, something really amazing can happen. Maybe a big part of your story is best described with the words lost and found. Look at this picture of this woman who's who's searching in all the dark corners of her house. She's lost one of her ten coins for her wedding dowry, which is something she treasures deeply. And and it would, you know, in in typical Middle Eastern fashion, these ten coins would hang in front of her face. So if one's missing, you, you know it's gone. She treasures this deeply, and so she's searching everywhere for it. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three lost and found stories. A shepherd who loses one of his sheep, a woman who loses one of her coins, and a father who loses one of his sons. 
And when the sheep and the coin and the son are found, there's a gigantic celebration. Again and again, Jesus tells us these are how things work when God is king. When God is king, things that are lost can be found. Things that were dead can come back to life. And Christians are people who have put all of their hope into this king and this kingdom. Who here would say that a big part of your story could be told the words lost and found? Jesus is pointing us to a mystery that's hidden in the very fabric of creation. When God is king, you can let it go and get it back. You can lose something and find it again. Something can die, but then it can be reborn. Jesus says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. We named our newborn son Jonathan Phoenix. Why? Because we wanted to help his chances of being a lead singer in a rock band. (laughs) No, I'll tell you the real reason. The real reason is because the the first Christians, they lived in the Roman catacombs because uh, they had to go underground. They could be killed for following Jesus. So this, this Christian movement began literally as an underground movement in a place of death in the catacombs. They were safe because their Roman oppressors, they were terrified of the spirit world. They were terrified of what could happen to you in a place of the dead. But the Christians, they weren't superstitious or fearful of tombs. They worshipped somebody who had conquered the grave. And so, in a place of death, they worshipped the Lord of life. And some of these underground Christians were artisans. And so, you know, they decided, we better spruce up this place. But they didn't paint the catacombs with crosses. Crucifixion stopped around 300 AD. It wasn't until around 400 AD that you started seeing the cross being used as a symbol to represent Christianity. But you would see other symbols. Biblical symbols from different stories and moments like... Jesus the Good Shepherd, or Jonah and the Big Fish, or Daniel and his friends in the fiery furnace, and the Phoenix Bird. The the Christians borrowed this, this cultural image and said, yeah, you know what, this one's ours now, because this whole thing about something being born out of a place of death and ashes, new life, rebirth... Yeah, that, that's a picture of the resurrection, so we're, we're going to take that one. Where there was death, Jesus brought life. Jonathan Phoenix. In, in no way does our new son replace the child that we lost. But we named him the way that we did because we know that one day we're going to be be able to see the face of the child we never got to meet. Resurrected. Fully alive. Beautiful. That's my resurrection hope. My pain does not need to be wasted. And neither does your pain. The death, the divorce, the heartache, the loss, the regret, the shame... It doesn't have to be wasted. It doesn't have to have the defining word in your story. Some of us have been letting these things define us for way too long. 
But Jesus has this amazing ability to take the worst parts of our stories and weave it into his story. He does so in such a way that these the worst thing that happened to us, it's still a part of our story. We don't avoid it. It's not like we don't talk about it. But instead of it be, being the, the title of our story, it becomes a chapter in light of this larger story that God is writing. Jesus can take the worst parts of our stories and weave it into his story. And we see him do that first with his own story. He does it with his scars. In the upper room, Jesus says, you guys, it's, it's me and I'll prove it to you. Look at my hands and my feet. Now that's, that's very appropriate. What, what happened to his hands and to his feet? And now his scars tell a story. I just think it's beautiful that the resurrected body of Jesus is not a scarless body. He kept the scars. He bears them even now as he ministers to us in our pain and our loss and our darkness. Why? Well, when you're really going through it, doesn't it make all the difference in the world when someone else can show you their scars and say, I get it. I understand. Like, sympathy is great, but but what about somebody who can show you their scars and, and with complete authenticity say, I really, really do understand. I wonder if I understand if, if those are the most powerful words that you can hear from somebody else. Because you, you suddenly realize, I'm, I'm not crazy, I'm not alone, I'm not the only one who's gone through this or feels this way. But more than that, that person is also telling you, I went through it, and I'm still here. I'm still here. That wasn't the end of my story. You hear that in the middle of what you're going through, and you look at your own scars, and suddenly you're opened up, you're opened up to new possibility. Maybe I'm going to get through this. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet. I understand, and I'm still here. Your scars tell a story, but they're only part of your story. They're a chapter in your story, and they aren't the defining word of your story. The defining word of your story is meant to come from Jesus. Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Isn't that great? Jesus is back from the worst thing that's ever happened to him. And what's the first thing he wants to speak over us? Peace be with you. Receive that even now from Jesus. Peace be with you. Jesus can speak peace over your darkness and loss and pain because he's gone through the worst thing that could happen to a human being. But the worst thing didn't get the last word. The resurrected Jesus speaks peace over the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And the thing about this, the one who's speaking these words, these words are a new creative word. Like the living God speaking over those those creation waters of darkness and chaos. Jesus speaks a new creative word over your darkness and chaos. And here's the thing. He's familiar with those waters. He has already gone down into those waters of darkness and chaos and pain. And he's come out the other side. And so if you can go down into those things, 
you can be in that knowing that Jesus has pioneered the way and he is reaching down into those waters where you are. He can pull you through. He has pioneered those waters. He's not scared of them. He knows what they're like and he's been victorious over them. And so those waters, the worst moment that you're going through, does not have to have the last word in your life. The defining word about your story doesn't have to be fear or loss or pain or regret or heartache or death. The defining word belongs to Jesus who has pioneered those waters and has been victorious and has emerged from the other side. And after the worst thing that's ever happened to him, Jesus can say to you and to me, peace be with you. Are you ready to have this new and better word be spoken over your scars? Today could be your day to let Jesus have the defining word over your story. The one with nail-scarred hands and feet says, peace be with you. The good news about what Jesus has done, it's not believe in Jesus and everything in your life will get better. The good news about what Jesus has done is believe in Jesus and even if everything in your life gets worse, even in those times when everything falls apart, you're going to be just fine. The good news about the resurrection of Jesus is not a promise that you'll never have to go through the waters of death and chaos and darkness. The good news is that God does some of his best work in those waters. And if we face those waters and we go down into them, then one day, just like Jesus, we're going to be with our friends asking, Hey, you guys have anything to eat? The way of Jesus is about dying so that we can really live. It's about trusting that Jesus has gone through the waters of death. And if we will trust in him, he will bring us through death into resurrection life. That life can begin today. For some of us, today we need to ask God, what in my life needs to die so that I can really live? Is it fear? Is it needing the approval of somebody else? Is it an addiction? Is it destructive thought patterns? Self-hatred, self-rejection? What needs to die so that I can really live? Some of us need to do something we've never done before. For some of us, today is the day to cross the line of faith and begin to follow Jesus. We would love to help you in that journey, and it's a journey that leads to your very own water baptism. Because that's where it all began for Jesus. Through water baptism, you're saying to God, to your community, to the world, I'm choosing Jesus and his way. We'll help you get ready for your baptism. We'll take time to talk through your life story. We'll see how your story connects to God's story. You can ask questions, learn more about the way of Jesus. And after you have time to prepare, we're going to throw this gigantic baptism party. We're going to invite your friends and family. It's going to be such a great day. If there's anybody in here who would raise their hand to say, that's me, I want to be baptized, we're going to give you that moment to respond. Let's respond to God. The communion and the prayer teams, they can please come up. This morning, everybody has the opportunity to celebrate communion. And if you're a Christ follower or if you want to be, then the table is set for you. Jesus told us to remember him until his return by taking bread and a cup. This bread is his body that was broken for us. 
This cup is his blood that established a new relationship between us and God. And because he is risen, Jesus is victorious over everything that used to keep us held captive by fear. Now we have full access and friendship with God. So let's celebrate our full access to God through communion. The bread and the cup are ready. Let's take this time to respond by celebrating communion through worship and through prayer. Please come forward.